Startups Podcast. You just need the packaging to shout off the shelf. It's a different world when you actually think about adding value. But to be able to play now is definitely going to require some new thinking out there. Hang out with us and learn how to grow your food business. Welcome to episode number 108 of the Food Startups Podcast. Now, before we start, I want to encourage all listeners that are interested in packaging and design, etc., to sign up for my mailing list. Why? Because as a free bonus for getting onto the mailing list of the Food Startups Podcast, you will automatically receive a one-page PDF that you can print out, put on your wall, or just look at it on your computer, whatever works for you. But it's a great reference point for going through the whole cycle of concept to final packaging with tips for finding designers um, and, and getting your idea sound and a vehicle of expressing your, your food product. Well, please sign up for that at foodstartupspodcast.com. Uh, on the right-hand side there, you can subscribe to the email list. And yes, yeah, so today's episode is with Maple Hill Creamery. You know, why does grass-fed dairy matter? Why did Tim decide to venture into having a dairy farm at first? And we go through the whole story, you know, 64 cows showing up literally to, to their land and all the learnings along the way. And yeah, I, it's a really, really fun ride. So I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. Thank you so much. So this started 12 years ago, and at the age of 32, he decided to follow his lifelong dream and become a farmer. And with no experience in farming, it was definitely trial and error. They brought about 60 cows to uh, about 250 acres of land while he was still working a full-time remote corporate job. And they started traditionally, and they kind of went, uh, we'll say, like to three different steps of of evolution in terms of the the type of yogurt. So they started with conventional methods of making yogurt and uh, milking cows, and then they moved to organic, and then they made a third shift, which I would say is probably the main defining factor of Maple Hill Creamery, and that's organic grass-fed, which is a big difference, and we'll talk about that. And uh, yeah, so after removing grain from the cow's diet, they noticed an incredible difference in the health and resilience of his cows. And the company has grown quite a bit. I Man, they're, uh, I think, in over 6,000 stores with this method. And now they're not milking cows anymore, right? They're, they're just running the creamery. And uh, yeah, I, I think you're going to learn a lot today, especially about the transitions they've actually took a part in getting a third-party grass-fed certification. Uh, we're learning a little bit about yogurt, leaving the corporate world, and yeah, and all of the fun things in in making a Crimean yogurt and being successful nationwide. So, Tim Joseph, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really psyched for this interview. I, I want to start, so pre-2004, up until 32, where did you grow up and what were you about? I, I grew up in western New Jersey on what was a 100-acre 
non-working farm, didn't grow up in commercial agriculture, but at one point, I guess when I was about 13, for whatever reason, I had decided that I really wanted to be a farmer, and so that's when I started to get interested in learning about agriculture and playing around with just normal things that people do, chickens and, you know, cows and things like that, sheep, and just did that in my teenage years while doing other typical teenage jobs. And then my wife and I owned a restaurant for a few years and eventually smartened up and got out of that business. And then... And what was the restaurant? What type of a restaurant? It was like a family style, real good home cooking type of a place. We learned a lot. If you ever want to learn about every aspect of business, run a restaurant. But uh, it's a hard hard business, hard life. And when we had our first son, decided, you know, this is probably not the right business for our family. So that was the MBA in the food business. Yeah, I guess you could say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, I eventually ended up working for a friend that I had gone to college with. He had started a, a practice management software company while we were in college together. And eventually he kept going with that after school and eventually needed help and so I moved to the Hudson Valley in New York State in 1999 to go work with him and and help grow that business and that's eventually how he ended up working for larger companies is because we were purchased by a larger company who was purchased by a larger company you know that typical thing and so I that's how he ended up working mostly remotely which is what triggered my wife and I to say, well, if we're ever going to do this crazy farm thing, maybe now is the time. And so that was like 2003 or so. We moved from um, a place we were renting in, in Dutchess County, New York, and moved to Herkimer County, which is sort of central New York State, where we had purchased a farm and just dove in. For the first year, we didn't really do anything on the farm, just lived there and tried to make it you know, renovate things slightly and, and all that kind of stuff. But it was a year later that we, we bought the cows with the idea that to ever be able to leave my job, I needed regular income. And dairy farming is one of the few things you can do in farming that gives you regular income because you get a monthly milk check. Just the little problem is is that the milk check is never enough to actually let you leave your job because it's just especially being a startup and not knowing a lot. Of course, we made a lot of mistakes. We had debt. We had not making as much milk as we as we should just from learning. And so it was difficult. So I kept my job for quite a while. And I wasn't able to leave my job until we started the, the creamery in 2009. I guess July. we started in May of 2009, started actually processing our own milk for the creamery. And in July of that year, that's when I... I couldn't afford to leave my corporate job. It was a very good job, but I couldn't afford to stay either because I, I just sort of had to pick what am I going to do So I didn't have the time or the energy to keep doing both. And so that's when we made the choice and sort of jumped into the abyss financially. That and Tim, I want to interject here. So I, it's interesting. So you did this for about five years. You had the remote corporate job. Yeah milking cows and then you you transition to the creamery but at that point so it's easy to say time right and i'm sure that was a factor but what about kind of the energy and mindset so if i say tim what do you do i was like well i have this corporate job and you know i also have a a creamery looking back seven years ago now was there any benefit 
psychologically, just having it, the creamery is one thing, whether it's just motivation, peace of mind, anything like that? Um, well, the, the five years we were basically just milking the cows, putting the milk on the truck, getting a paycheck from a co-op. And so it was a little simpler, the corporate job, my paycheck helped us basically stay afloat. Right. So it was, that was definitely good. But then when we started the creamery, I just really wanted to pick, just focus on one thing and thought from a personal standpoint, the thing that would make me happiest in the long term was to start the creamery and really focus on that and make that the core of, of our focus and stop having to travel for my corporate job and and all that stuff. So it was really about just trying to buckle down and, and make it go. We definitely couldn't afford to. I couldn't afford to leave my job and probably shouldn't have, but couldn't have done it any other way. So it is what it is. But it was nice to just focus on one thing. Well, one second you say probably shouldn't have. I know it's like a half-joking tone, but do you think you would have had just the the mental bandwidth to, and I know, you know, obviously with your wife as well, but would you have had the mental bandwidth to to make it work? Do you think you'd be in the same position today if you stayed another couple of years at your job? No, no way. Because, you know, part of, part of what drives you forward sometimes is desperation, right? So if things are, they're never easy, right? Doing two jobs and milking cows and all that or whatever anybody is doing is everybody has their, difficulty so it's never easy but it's certainly when you when you have to do it it certainly focuses you right so in some sense having no net below just makes you just have to just keep going right and that's definitely the only way we were able to get to where we are now is just keep going i, I mean i just many times probably should have stopped but I just don't know I guess didn't know how to stop and couldn't stop you know so and didn't have any backup I got you and it reminds me of the famous the explorer the Cortez uh, in, in Mexico where he burned the ships right so his men were losing right and, uh, and then all of a sudden he burns the ships like well listen we can't go back we're all in yeah we're all in <laughs> I really appreciate you sharing this Tim because I get a lot of listener questions where they're kind of at that stage, maybe where you were at uh, 2008, 2009, in the sense that they have a side business and it's the food business and they want to make it full time. So you mentioned just like the focus. Any tips for deciding? I don't, maybe you should, couldn't have done it. You probably could not have done it in 2004 financially. So what's the uh, right time? How do you know when to go all in? a tough question it's so situation specific probably but I mean part of it you'd have to probably try to better plan than I did even if I had planned I still couldn't have made a different decision but if you have the opportunity to plan you know to to build up some some cash in the bank to in essence pay yourself during that year or two that when you leave your job and you're three (laughs) or three (laughs) exactly um so as best you can you know if if you have a big car payment and all that kind of stuff you definitely need to change your life before you you jump off the the bridge because you're going to be all in and then you've got to just be realistic it takes I don't know if there's, it, there's probably very few businesses that when you 
you decide to focus on it fully that it's actually ready to pay you and give you a living wage and all that stuff. So you just sort of have to plan for that. But that's another form of investment is, you know, sweat equity and working for little or nothing to get your business to the point where it does throw off enough dollars to, to pay you. So just to, to plan and be realistic and probably underestimate what, what the business is capable of doing, you know, entrepreneurs, myself included. I mean, there's entrepreneurial optimism is sometimes the only way you can keep going, right? Is you always think next month's going to be better or off after I get this deal or this store or whatever, but just realize that it's, it's optimism it may not be realistic and to just be ready for that. Not to say you shouldn't do it, but it's just, it's never easy. Otherwise everybody would be doing it. So you just have to be realistic, right? Listeners, this episode can be found at foodstartupspodcast.com slash Maple Hill. I guess the farmer said, uh, you can correct me here, but it was something like I get up like a quarter to three or maybe 3.30. But it was definitely before 4 a.m. that you have to get up to start the day. Yeah, no, it's uh, pretty pretty common. I mean, you have to milk cows twice a day, so and they like to be milked roughly every 12 hours. So for sure, farmers live a, a very structured life, and part of that is getting up early in general. And so if you're going to milk your cows at 5 o'clock in the morning, if you want to milk your cows before dinner in the evening at 5 o'clock or something like that, that means you've got to get them milking in the morning somewhere around 5 o'clock in the morning. So, yeah, you can easily be up at 3, 3.30 to get the cows, bring them in, get them set, start milking at 5 so that you can be ready to milk again at 5 o'clock that night. Uh, and it doesn't stop. Holidays, weekends, all that stuff never never ends. Never stops. And I understand, correct me here if I'm wrong again, but not just for the amount of milk, but if you don't milk cows, can that adversely affect the cows and, and their health? Oh, sure. So, well, I mean, if you stop milking a dairy cow, she will do what's called dry off, which is basically the pressure in her udder is what sends a signal to her body to, if it keeps building up, it's telling her body to stop milking because in nature that would have meant, oh, my calf is gone, right? So the cow has a calf every year on a dairy farm in order to make milk. And in nature, that calf would milk from its mother, you know, from the spring all the way through fall. And when the calf would naturally be weaned, be told, stop taking milk and you're on your own, buddy, the pressure would build up in the cow's udder. And that's what would tell her body, oh, calf's gone, stop milking and get ready for the next year. So on a dairy farm, if you stop, if you skip milking or something, which occasionally happens, you know, there's times where weather, there's been times where electricity, you know, who knows where you skip milking for one milking or something, and that's not going to do anything. It'll maybe suppress her milk slightly, but if you just up and stop milking, she'll just dry off and and then be what's called a dry cow uh, on the farm until she has a calf again. Gotcha. Well, great explanation. And uh, so, Tim, I want to go into something. So the transition from conventional to organic to organic mm-hmm. grass-fed. So first off, can you tell us what conventional, uh, I guess, sure. cow milking is? Sure. So conventional just means that you're able to use really any 
any chemicals on your land, any antibiotics in your cows that are legal, right? So there's still things you can't do, but by and large, if it's being sold by a vet or a agriculture supply company, you can use it. There's nothing from a regulatory standpoint that stops you. And at the same time, you're not making any claims on your product that says anything about your practices, right? It's just do what, what you want, when you want, as long as it's legal. And so that's what most of agriculture has been for a very long time, and most products on the shelf are conventionally produced. And then organic is a different thing in that within the organic rules, there are substances and medicines like antibiotics and things that in an organic system cannot be used by law. You know, the organic certification is a federal program. It's an actual law maintained by the USDA. And there's basic rules that say what you can and cannot use and how you can use them, etc. And then you're able to make a claim on your product that says you manage things organically. So in dairy, it basically means, you know, no antibiotics can be used in the herd if you have to treat a cow with antibiotics if there's no other way to save her which is actually the requirement if you can't save a cow with organic means you need to try medicines and things and then if you treat her she has to actually leave the herd and be sold you know to a conventional farmer what have you um, and then on the land you can't use any prohibited substances basically chemicals and everything needs to be a natural substance that would occur in nature so compost and manure and all that stuff is fine for fertility but you can't use like roundup or, or other chemicals like that and so when we started we were conventional farm we were always sort of managing we didn't know fairly or close to organic we didn't we were grazing we didn't use a lot of antibiotics we just were pretty low input minded and eventually realized that geez we're pretty close to organic and we were having a really difficult time because the milk price and conventional was so so difficult to to make a go and so bad we thought well why don't we get certified organic and then we'd get a better price for our milk which we did so that was 2007 we made that decision and how much was the increase in in price for organic oh it went from um so i think it went at that time the milk in conventional was it's milk is priced by the hundred weight or by the pound in essence but fourteen dollars a hundred weight which is 14 cents a pound or so was the conventional price and at the time the um the organic price was somewhere around 32 cents a pound so it was almost double or more a little more than double which was which was great the challenge is though that to transition cows to being organic, dairy farmers are allowed to do that once, and it's a one-year transition where you manage your cows organically, meaning feed them organic feed and don't use any of those substances that are not allowed, but you get the conventional price because you're not yet certified organic. So that transition year is, is extremely difficult because the cost of organic grain and all those other things are higher but you're still getting that same $14 a hundred weight for your milk. So I had always been very interested in grazing and grass-fed pr production, but the reality was also that during that transition year, we literally could not afford to buy organic grain even if we wanted to. So a combination of belief that we had the belief that grass-fed was possible, which was not really 
widely held at that time. And we also had the reality that we couldn't afford organic grain anyway. And we had the desire eventually to do something with our own milk. And I thought grass-fed was sort of a good niche. So between all those three things, that's when we also went grass-fed. And it allowed us to get through our transition year a little easier, but still brutal. And then come out the other side certified organic. And at the time, we were still just selling our milk to a co-op. So while it was grass-fed, it wasn't really recognized or marketed as such. And then that's eventually where the creamery came into being in 2009 is that's when we started to take our own milk that was organic and grass-fed and put it in our own package and call it grass-fed. So it was a long transition. And at that time, grass-fed in dairy was, we were like heretics because we were told, you know, you can't make milk without feeding cows grain. Which was Why did they say that? Just, just cultural norms and st- nobody had really focused on it or tried it or relearned how to do it and so it was just you don't do it that way sort of thing which is pretty normal in agricultural it's a very tradi- a lot of tradition and and norms that change slowly we didn't actually since we didn't come from an agricultural background we didn't really have any of that baggage or inertia and so we were, we didn't know any you know the wisdom of ignorance i guess and we just did it can't say it was easy i mean you know for sure definitely a learning curve and at that time we were pretty much alone trying to figure it out um and that's sort of what's changed now is that because of how far we've come as maple hill creamery now grass-fed is a thing for sure (laughs) and we've been able to build a network of over 80 farms in new york state and share knowledge and Grass-fed is now, if there is such a thing in agriculture as cool, grass-fed dairy may be one of those things. <laughs> and so there's a lot of focus, and now some of the same same groups and sort of people that, that said we were nuts or whatever now are in many cases embracing grass-fed dairy and trying to help. So it's all a good thing, but certainly was rough when we started. And so, okay... When you started, I wonder, psychologically, I'm just curious. So when people say, hey, you can't do grass-fed, did you ever internally question, like, hey, maybe they're right. Maybe this grass-fed thing's not going to work out. Did you ever go through any of that? Oh, sure. I mean, on a daily basis, and you're doing things that, well, there's two sides. One is when people tell me that you can't do it, that sort of makes me want to do it uh, to some extent. But at the same time, I had a family on a farm that we're trying to keep afloat and so there's always the element of fear right so you always vacillate back and forth and in your own head of being afraid that what you're doing is stupid or not possible or whatever and that certainly was there for sure and how'd you work through that just keep going i mean that's it <laughs> just, just keep going. double down yeah yeah, yeah. and just Perfect. keep I always say brute force and ignorance, really. A lot of times, you just got to keep going, right? Well, it's kind of like for people that have fear of heights, they say, like, if you're, I don't know, you're climbing up something high, just, like, don't look down. I kind of think a lot about that yeah. in, in entrepreneurship because, you know, you're, you're doing something, you're taking a big risk. And sometimes it's like if you stop to think about, like, everything and you get in your head, that's when it can get really dangerous. So, uh, yep. I love it. Really, really pragmatic advice. And, okay, so I want to I want to move on to... The making of uh, the yogurt. So, sure. um, you know, layman's terms, how do you make yogurt? And then 
Also, uh, the second part, what about Greek yogurt? What is the difference in the process of Greek yogurt, which I think is also a cool thing in, in agriculture right now? Yeah, sure. So traditional yogurt, which is what we started with, is called cup set, where you basically heat milk and you actually have to heat it to a high temperature to change the the proteins to what's called denature the protein so you have to heat it to at least 180 degrees for 30 minutes so on your stove you can do that and that's how we started developing our recipes was on the kitchen stove so you heat it to 180 for 30 minutes and then you cool it down to somewhere around 100 105 somewhere in there slightly over body temperature and that's when you add the cultures, which are basically like uh, they're different strains of bacteria that work on the milk sugars to break it down, acidify it, and it forms into that, that substance we call yogurt. So what happens is after you put the cultures in, you pour that warm cultured milk into whatever container you want to make the yogurt in. So for us, that's little six-ounce cups and quarts. You pour the milk in, put a lid on it, and then you basically keep it warm. You incubate it for a certain number of hours, depending on the cultures, anywhere from five to eight hours. Keep it warm. And at the end of that time, the pH will have dropped. To legally be yogurt, the pH has to be less than 4.7 pH. And then each culture sort of has its own pH it settles into. Ours is a, a tartar, more traditional culture, so ours is more like 4.2 or something like that. But at that, that fi- after you've incubated it, you basically put it in a cooler to cool it, and then when you take that lid off, that's cup-set yogurt. So cup-set, meaning the yogurt was set in the cup. The other style of yogurt, which we don't produce but is fairly common, is vat-set yogurt, same exact process except that rather than putting the warm cultured milk into a container it stays in a big tank and it sets there and then once it's done and it's at the right pH it's then pumped into the cups sort of as a solid you know mass and it usually has to be stabilized in order to do that with pectin or something like that otherwise it'll break apart but that's how you make like a a yogurt where it's all blended with the fruit right in and that sort of thing. Right. And then Greek is basically you take a vat set yogurt and you separate it. And you traditionally it would have been done, and you can do this at home, take a quart of, of yogurt, put it in, get some cheesecloth, put it in cheesecloth and hang the cheesecloth over a dish and leave it in the refrigerator overnight. And in the morning you'll come back and there'll be whey in the dish and the yogurt that's left will be Greek. It's just basically strained. So obviously we can't do that in a commercial, at a commercial scale, and you know the FDA wouldn't appreciate a bunch of bags of uh, yogurt hanging around a dairy plant. So it, the way it's done at, at a, a larger scale is the yogurt is pumped through basically what's kind of like a cream separator, which is when you separate the cream from milk, it's in a centrifuge. This thing spins around at a very high RPM, and the skim milk goes one way, and the cream goes another. 
on Greek yogurt, it's exactly the same thing, except the skim milk is basically the whey, and the cream is the resulting Greek yogurt. So Greek yogurt, the reason why it's got more protein and it's generally more expensive than traditional yogurt is, is it takes a little over three times the milk to make the same amount of yogurt. So if you start with a quart of, of yogurt in your cheesecloth, you're going to end up with somewhere around a third of that volume as Greek yogurt. And so when you concentrate it like that, obviously the, the protein goes up on a unit basis because, you know, you, the, the whey and a lot of water left. And also, obviously, the cost per unit is higher because you used a quart of yogurt to make a third of a quart uh, of Greek. Wow. Okay. Great explanation. So the, the whey is kind of like the, the watery substance that gets filtered. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Now, now, moving yep. on, I uh, one thing that's really interesting to me that stood out. So being on the shelf in 600 independents in Northeast to nationwide, over 6,000 stores. Um, tell us the growth story. How, how did that happen? Sure. So we, in 2009, we started. We were selling just locally to a few stores, delivering the yogurt in the back of my pickup in like a chest freezer I had modified and realized that, that there's no way we were going to make it at that level and we needed to gain more sales. And so I had signed up for a a startup farmer's market in New York City, which was at the former Fulton Fish Market. It was called the New Amsterdam Market. And I thought, well, I'm going to go to that and um, find a distributor, try to try to find somebody in New York that can distribute our product. And we ended up meeting our first distributor there who's still with us. And that's how we started selling wholesale through distribution into New York, New York City. And that was like early 2010. And then from there, we just sort of little by little tried to add other distributors uh, as we found them and as they found us. So, you know, added some more local distribution that year. And then little by little, we started to learn and understand how it all works. And then eventually we we found a great little broker in, in Maine that started to represent us. And through them, we we got into our first sort of larger distributor, uh, Kehi, in early 2011. We went into the Kehi Northeast Warehouse, and that was our first sort of taste of of a larger distributor. And from there, we just kept on pushing out. You know, Kehi at the time, our buyer, who was a great guy, Christian Grover, said, okay, guys, get 20 get 20 points of distributions, 20 stores signed up in a, in a warehouse, and I'll turn you on. So... That was pretty much all we needed to know. We then signed up for the Cahey shows uh, that they had at the time. So we went down to Florida and went to their next natural show and signed up 20 customers in their Florida warehouse. And then we did the same thing in, in the Midwest and then in Dallas. And so just started opening up warehouses. The, the, the amount of cost of freight to get it there didn't make any sense, but the part of the, it's like one of these catch 22s a lot of stores will take your product once it's in the warehouse but you can't get it in the warehouse if you don't have stores to take your product so we always took the approach of well, let's get it in the warehouse we know it doesn't make any sense financially you know we're paying 350 dollars to ship 350 dollars worth of product but that's the only way you can get going so that's what we did and then eventually we were able to open up unfi northeast and sort of did the same thing and just 
slowly but surely. We've hired a, a gentleman who's still with us. Uh, in 2011, we met Perry Throckmorton, our VP of sales, at uh, the Cahey Show. Met him at the bar, which is always a good place to meet meet people uh, that are that are useful. <laughs> um, so we met Perry, and he he was representing a few small brands, and he made a deal with us. Couldn't afford them, and we couldn't not afford them. So Perry then helped us. He had industry contacts, which is always very, very critical, you know, for anybody who's trying is, to. Is Perry a broker? Uh, Perry, he he's not a broker. He was basically a he would help small brands pioneer, you know, more of a salesperson for hire than a broker. So really, just focused on just a few brands and having those contacts in the industry is is key. And so that's what right. really helped us start to grow our store count is just knowing who to call and knowing how the, the system works. And it's really important to have somebody on your team that understands the industry, number one, and number two, to listen to them. Because very often, Perry or others who are in the industry and trying to help small brands grow, they've sort of seen it before and people go and they hire them and then they just don't listen. And so it's it's crazy, but true. Uh, so it's important to listen and, and try to learn because it is a very different industry and we're just fairly open-minded and, and tried to listen. And obviously you have to make judgment calls and things and not everything everyone tells you is correct, but you really have to be open-minded. Um, and then little by little, we just kept on adding stores and adding warehouses and just we we tend to... When in doubt, we do show up at shows. I mean, we do tabletops, we do big trade shows, small trade shows. That was one of the things that early on, I think, was we just were always present. So you may not, they're expensive. A lot of people go to trade shows expecting for the sales at the trade show to pay for the, for the show, and that's crazy. It's likely never to happen, and that's not why you're there. You're there to be in front of retailers and to become known as a known quantity and that you're there not just the first year, but you're there the second and the third show too because people don't want to, retailers don't want to bring in products that maybe are on the shelf and then off. So you have to show up and, and be at all those events and get to know people and eventually, maybe it's not the first or second show, but that third show, maybe they'll bring in and give you a try. So just being present is, is part of it. It's just showing up is, is sometimes half the battle and, and be there and keep pushing. I think Woody Allen said showing up is like 90%, right? Yeah, it is. Uh, it is. The famous is. quote. <laughs> uh, Tim, I want to, I want to compliment you. I, I uh, you know, in this short time, just, just speaking with you, the, it, it seems like following your intuition and also kind of, we'll call it checking the ego, but being able to listen to you know, your broker or also your sales team. So, so kudos for that because a lot of companies have gone, and not just food, you know, in business in general, have gone south because they didn't listen to, to experts. And certain experts you can't listen to, which makes it even right. more difficult. Because I'm sure you wouldn't say to listeners, listen to everyone because you, you had to ignore certain people like the people that said, don't do grass fed. Um, yeah. But I guess you maybe you could just tell, uh, you know, speaking to this, this sales guy that, you know, he was the real deal. Right, right. Yeah, you have to pick your people well, right? <laughs> you don't want to listen to everybody. But if you've decided that somebody is a, a good person and knows what they're talking about, you really need to listen to them. And, uh, and Honest Tea, it's interesting. So we had Honest Tea on the show, and they kind of talked. Uh, they, uh, I see a lot of similarities. They talked about the chicken and the egg with 
the kind of when you mentioned the warehouse, but just the whole idea of you want to get with the distributor in a certain region, but they won't carry you in that region unless you have the stores and the stores won't carry you unless you have the distributor. And so you kind of just bit the bullet and sent it down to the warehouse, even though it didn't make sense. Yeah. Uh, and also kind of the, I guess it's interesting too, I, I, I noted here, just the kind of the leap of faith with the trade shows. It's funny, I'll, I'll be really honest here, Tim. So we're a lot much younger company and I kind of, to be honest, I'll, I'll, I'll be really honest here. I always look at trade shows as like, hmm, do you think we can make this money back uh, the first year? But you're right, it's probably not realistic for the amount that we have to pay for a booth. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you never will. I've you never, never yet, wow. <laughs> still, you know? Yeah. Never yet. Maybe one or two. We've we've been able to sell enough to theoretically like cover the the cost, but it's really we never go in thinking that's why we're there. It's a marketing exercise, not a sales exercise. And it also brings you back to touch points. So I think of okay, oh, you have Kroger, Target, Walmart, Wegmans. Uh, do you have Wegmans as well? Uh, yes, we're in Wegmans. Wegmans. Okay, yeah. So these big stores, uh, Safeway. You know, big or small, really, the amount of touch points is so important. So not just knowing the direct buyer, but knowing the buyer in the related division or someone in marketing. And I always think about, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but just the the number of touch points, if you can increase that, even if you know the accountant, the more people you know in the company, the more uh, just being familiar with something, the familiarity bias, right? Yep. You're, you're more likely to get into the their stores yep. stay there. Yep. It's a, it's a relationship business. I mean, it, you have to do the numbers. You have to... Your product has to perform, but relationships are a big part of it. And also at the front end, right, even having a shot at it, it's literally usually one person. It's a buyer. And if that buyer likes you or doesn't like you, that can determine whether you're on the shelf or not. So you have to, that's the other thing I think is just, it's amazing to me how many people are sort of adversarial when they are working with distributors and retailers and things. It's like, how do you expect to be successful doing that you these people are customers and distributors included and you have to treat them as such and and give and take so it's super important so okay i want to finish off here i i agree with that tim and and so we have a, a food mastermind where a, a couple of brands uh you know a couple of founders and we get together once a month and we talk about this stuff and one of the things that i've been working out is diplomacy so i've taken the stance of yeah you cannot you don't want to piss off the buyers at, at unfi or, yep. or or anywhere else but like how do you and this is something that i'm trying to figure out you obviously have to be diplomatic and, and treat people well and, and be proactive etc cetera, etc cetera. but there's got to be certain times where you need to take a stand maybe it's placement or maybe i don't know people aren't getting back to you how do you handle those situations you know it's uh it's always a judgment call i mean i always just try to look at it like doing the right thing first of all right and that's your first filter and I don't know I, I guess that it, context is everything on, on those sorts of things but in general you know buyers and and all of that have their own constraints in their world and they're trying to do the right thing within their context so it's trying to find that balance of win-win you know and just being honest and upfront and respectful if you're having an issue with something or with someone that you know a buyer or something to just respectfully explain your position or predicament and usually that will trigger them to explain and you end up somewhere at least understanding you know each other and then sometimes because you've understood each other you can come to a solution that's good for both parties right and you're never always going to win right but i think that's just just not coming at it totally one-sided um 
I, I actually, yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense. And I think also, um, especially as you're growing, or even when you're when you're big and and you guys are in six thousand stores, but still, you're talking to this buyer. He may be dealing with two hundred different SKUs. So even if you're like one of the, like one of the you know higher sellers, that's still, I mean, you're still like half a percent of of what he has to deal with on a daily basis. You know, it, they have so many products that they have to filter in. So it is good to put yourself in the in the buyer's shoes for sure. But well, Tim, listen, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Yeah, it's uh, maplehillcreamery.com. And if listeners want to reach out with you, can they find you on social media or what's the best way to get in touch? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn for sure. LinkedIn, okay. That's the best way to get me. Okay, I will add the LinkedIn bio. Well, yeah, Tim, I uh, had a great time speaking with you and learning about grass-fed organic dairy. And thank you so much. Thank you. I think what you're doing is great. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, find us online at foodstartupspodcast.com.